Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the, when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word for, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. So he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Aeschylus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. I hope you, I hope you had a good Christmas. We did. Um, I'm, I'm excited, even though it's only two days after we were, to, <laughs> we were together last, um, it, it's, uh, I'm excited to close out the year with you and to close out this series that, that we've called for the last four years, Songs of Advent. 
where we meditate on popular Christmas carols by tracing their themes back to the Holy Scriptures, themes of faith and hope and love. Uh, the carols are packed with that. Uh, and today, we're going to close it out with the carol, We Three Kings. And actually, I'm calling it, I'm calling it We Three Kings Reprise because four years ago, I preached on this carol. Uh, you can, if you go to our website, you can find the recording from 2016. It's not the same sermon because I'm preaching on a different aspect of, of the carol. I'm going to talk about something else. So We Three Kings is actually an American carol. It was uh, written and composed by John H. Hopkins, Jr., 1857. He was a Pennsylvania pastor and author. And uh, we talked about this four years ago, how the carol, We Three Kings, it ponders the significance of the wise men, the Magi's visits, and their three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, uh, to the young boy, Jesus. Uh, we're going to focus on something different today. Uh, what we're going to try and be consistent with, though, is that the primary theme of Epiphany is, is this visit, uh, the Magi finding the child Jesus and worshiping Him, we're told. Have you ever wondered, though, where they came from? How they even knew to look for Jesus? Have you ever thought about that? How did they know? Where did they come from? How did they know to look for this baby? Actually, it wasn't a baby by the time they found Jesus. He was probably a toddler. These questions aren't directly answered in the Bible. The Bible doesn't deal with them directly. However, the Bible does give us some clues. Along with history and science, you can pull some details together to get a plausible understanding of these questions. And actually, we may owe the Magi's visit to one of Israel's darkest moments. The reason the Magi even found Jesus in the first place has a lot to do with, with one of the darkest chapters of ancient Israel's history. And as we unfold this and unpack it, I hope you will see today that God has woven His redemption through some of the saddest, most complicated times in history. And we're going to talk about, just briefly, we're going to talk about ancient Israel's history as it relates to the history of the Magi. And then we're going to apply it a little bit to our own history, our personal histories, our families' histories, our, our culture's histories. And then we're going to talk about the history of redemption, how God saved us, the history of that in the Bible. So just those three things, Israel's history, our history, your history, and God's history. Now, Israel's history and the wise men's history intersected long before the birth of Jesus. Actually, Matthew, you, what you see in the, in the Scripture, you see in Matthew chapter 2, wise men. Uh, in the original Greek, Matthew's Gospel used the term magi. Now, the term magi also appeared very briefly in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel chapter 2. You might remember that among the Babylonian and then the Persian kings, educated advisors and dream interpreters, there, there was one term amongst that mix of people, those advisors, and it was, it was this term magi. And then you may think, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you may think back to the Hebrew, the Hebrew prophet Daniel, 
and how Daniel uh, deported uh, to Babylon, Daniel rose to prominence among this class of the king's advisors. He actually rose to such prominence that eventually under the Persian reign, he was above all of them. He was like the chief advisor to the king. So when you see this term magi, uh, Daniel as a foreigner became one of them. Hebrew prophet uh, leading this class of trusted officials. And, and then one scholarly article says that by the time of Christ, almost 600 years later, Magi were, quote, learned court advisors whose work involved studying ancient and sacred texts as well as watching for movements of planets and stars that might be interpreted as divine messages. Now, in the 1300s, the, the English Protestant reformer and Bible translator John Wycliffe, in his translation of the New Testament, when you get to this point, magi, Wycliffe interpreted that word as, listen to this, astronomers. And he was pretty close to the idea of what they really were in their time. Now, do you know what, who knows what happened a week ago on December 21st? What was the big thing that happened? The great conjunction of 2020. I have a picture. Now, this, this isn't the actual conjunction. I, I, I couldn't... I couldn't find a good picture, so I'll just show you something that was, that's kind of like it. The great conjunction of 2020, Jupiter and Saturn appeared in the evening sky just 0 0.06 degrees apart from one another, from our perspective. Now, many centuries ago, the German astronomer Johannes Kepler, he calculated back uh, similar conjunctions like this throughout history, and guess what? A similar conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of the Pisces appeared, guess when? 7 BC. Right around the time that historians believe Jesus was born. Actually, centuries before Jesus, Alexander the Great's birth had also been associated with an astronomical, uh, astronomical sign of its time. So perhaps these Magi and Herod if you really think about it, would have looked up and wondered what is the meaning of this great event. But they had also been trained by the centuries of Daniel's legacy over their class of advisors. So I think uh, because of the Jewish influence upon their profession, it is amazing, but it is very plausible that the Magi found Jesus because they knew to look for Him. But all of that, Daniel's influence, the Hebrew prophetic influence upon the Babylonians and the Medeans and the Persians for centuries up until the time of Jesus' birth, all of that was really, it was really the result of Israel's sad, messed up history. They had suffered centuries before Jesus foreign oppression from the Babylonians who conquered them and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and humiliated all of them and then deported them. The best among them deported them to Babylon. And that was all because of their own moral decline, the Old Testament tells us. Because of Israel's moral decline, because of their cultural sins and individual sins from the leaders down to the priests, down to the common people. 
The prophet Ezra put it this way very succinctly. Ezra chapter 5, verse 12, he said, this is, why, this is why we were destroyed and deported as a society, because our fathers had angered the God of heaven. He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And yet, and yet, in that sad chapter of their history, God had planted a seed of faith in a foreign land through Daniel, through the witness of other Hebrews living as exiles, from which, a seed of faith from which 500 years later, the Magi's own descendants would become the first Gentiles of history to worship the Jewish Messiah with gold and frankincense, as Isaiah 60 predicted, but also with myrrh. So the sins of Israel the faithfulness of Daniel, and then the the legacy of the Magi, I think invite us to ask ourselves, this is where it gets practical and personal, to ask ourselves in the history of the church, I mean capital C, if you're a Christian, church with a capital C, the history of the church, in the history of a religion, in the history of a nation, of our nation, in the history of a people group, of your people group, in the history of a family, of your family, in your history, how has God woven His redemption even in the saddest and most complicated chapters of our history, of your history? Have you considered, have you ever considered how God, despite cultural atrocities, despite your own poor choices, despite what people have done or said to you, how has God brought good and planted seeds of hope in your life, in your family's history, in our culture, in your neighborhood, in the world? How has God woven redemption in the darkest chapters of our histories? You know, most of the Bible, if you read the whole Bible, most of it is basically about how God's salvation plan practically works into humanity uh, through the lives of displaced people groups and dysfunctional families. Just, just read the Bible. You'll figure it out really quickly in Genesis. It's, it's basically all God working to save humanity through dysfunctional families and displaced people. That's the, most of the Bible, including Jesus himself who became displaced, uh, displaced once Herod got wind that the Magi had given in the slip. So ask God for the faith and the courage. You need courage, too, to do this. Ask Him for the faith and the courage to look for signs of His grace even in the ugliest chapters of your personal history and our cultural history. Can you do that? Here are just a couple of very simplistic, overly simplified examples, just so you understand where I'm coming from. And most of you have heard me talk about this recently, but in my own story... Uh, being bullied a lot in middle school and, and as an early adolescent helped me once I got through a lot of the sinful results of that, my personal sinful responses to that, um, eventually uh, helped me become a compassionate adult. And I needed that perspective and I needed that sympathy and empathy and, and, and experiential authority to be able to minister to people as a pastor. Now, I don't think I have the personal authority at all to say this, but I think in our circle it needs to be said. Um, despite uh, the history of American slavery 
and the struggle of our African-American neighbors and brothers and sisters and what they have endured for centuries, despite all that, they have given to us as Americans a legacy of, just as an example, spirituals, the blues, and perhaps the highest truly American art form, jazz itself. Speaking as a musician, I have a lot that I am grateful for and indebted for despite the terrible struggles of our brothers and sisters and neighbors. Uh, a deeper concern for human rights. And for Christians, for Christians, a legacy of learning how to worship God and live your faith out under constant pressure. Here's another example of which I claim no moral authority but think is worth mentioning. Despite the Holocaust, and centuries and centuries of persecution and alienation in Europe, American Jews for the last 150 years have taught us all how to laugh. How to laugh in the worst and even most awkward of situations. I think the American sense of humor, our approach to entertainment and comedy itself is largely indebted to Jewish immigrants who learned how to develop even a cynical but true sense of humor in the worst of circumstances. Those are just some very simplistic and simple, uh, just fundamentally, uh, 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 what am I trying to say? Th those are just a couple of examples of what I'm encouraging you to do. Okay, how about your people group? How about your family? How about yourself? How about the year 2020? Ask God for the faith and the courage to look for signs of His practical grace. Joseph had done this. He had a lot of time in prison. He had a lot of time at the bottom of that pit to think about what his brothers had done to him. And what was interesting was after 30 years of thinking about what his brothers had done to him, this was, jo Joseph's, this was Joseph's conclusion about the history of his family and the history of his people group and the history of the society in which he now lived as an alien. He said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Faith and courage to look for signs of His grace in your history, in our history. Now listen, I, want, I don't want to be misunderstood. I am not preaching any kind of license to ignore your sin, to ignore our corporate collective sins. I'm not preaching a license to neglect legitimate concerns that we have before us today. I'm not asking you to neglect or dismiss those who are hurting. What I'm calling you to do is to endure and to hope and to worship and to give thanks in the midst of our society's cancel culture. This is what we're doing now. We cancel each other out. Um, where we admire our heroes, uh, we discover uh, that they're actually human after all. And once we discover that our heroes are just human like the rest of us, then we self-righteously eliminate them from our discourse and from our corporate memory and from our photo albums and from our photo files and from our followers on social media. You see... If we look thoroughly enough into anybody's life, 
into any culture's history, into any people group's story, we will find cause to cancel and dismiss them for something at some point. But you see, if you make that the rule, if you make that the way, if, if that becomes your formula for looking at life and looking at the world and looking at systems and looking at governments and looking at individuals and looking at families and looking at communities, if that becomes your formula, um, then eventually you'll have nobody left to learn from and appreciate. Now, ironically, cancel culture teaches us something important. Ironically, that's the Bible's point. At the end, there's nobody left to admire, truthfully. <laughs> and that's the Bible's point, but from a different perspective. Not from our own perspective, from God's perspective. This is cancel culture given from the Bible's perspective. Uh, Paul summed it up in Romans chapter 3, and he took it from Psalm 14. None is righteous, no, not one. When we analyze ourselves and we look at our families and we look at our society and we look at our nation and we look at every denomination, every religion, every Christian denomination, we get to the point where you have to cancel everybody because none is righteous, no, not run from God's perspective, which makes all of us who cancel one another hypocrites. God is the only one with the moral integrity and legal authority enough to cancel us all but he didn't. And that's why Christmas and the Incarnation are so important. God's history is a story of redemption through the worst of circumstances. Jesus, whose childhood began in Egypt as a refugee because of Herod the king's uh, desire to find him and murder him, the eternal Son of God adopted not only human flesh and blood, but adopted Israel's tarnished history as his own. And then he took on your sins and my sins and our tarnished stories, and he adopted them as his own, and he took them on the cross where he died for sins he never committed and was humiliated for a reputation and a legacy that was never his fault. And the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans summed it up by saying this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Another way of saying that is while we were still cancelable, Christ canceled Himself for us. That's why Christmas is so important. Because the, he, the One who came, He is the only one who had the authority to cancel us, but He became one of us and canceled Himself instead. Paul put it this way, um, when he spoke to Timothy, his letter to Timothy, Timothy chapter 3, uh, sorry, Titus, he said, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Do you think as that sign in the Pisces um, appeared and the Magi saw it and then maybe even Herod saw it, right? Just think of the kindness 
of God appearing in Jesus. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of our works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs, His heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. That's how Christianity, that's how the Bible answers our little habit of dismissing one another when we disappoint one another. Let Jesus Christ speak grace into your personal story. Let Him speak grace into our corporate stories. Let Jesus Christ speak grace into your own assessment of others and their stories. Because He has woven His redemption through the saddest chapters of history and our lives. So ask Him for the faith and the courage to look for signs of His grace. You will find them. You may have been choosing not to, but in faith you will find them. And they will become part of your story. Just as Paul's story was always when he stood before kings and, and rulers and people, he said, I was a disaster. I was a disaster, but Jesus Christ died for me. And that, was a, that became a part of his story. And just as seeds of salvation were planted in Israel's history that produced a harvest of worship when the Magi came to visit Jesus as a little boy, what seeds did God plant in your story? Discover what they are. And maybe you know. Tell them to somebody else. Give them hope. Give them encouragement. They may need it right now. They may need it right now. They may need to hear how God has woven redemption into your story, into our story. Just imagine what type of righteousness and worship will be harvested by people who learn to see God's grace even in the darkest of circumstances? When Jesus returns, we will all be able to look back at the darkest periods of our lives and in the history of this world and say, God was there. God was working. Even in you even in 2020. So let's close it out in faith. Let's pray. Father, we confess as the Psalms did, um, if You kept a record of wrongs, oh Father, who could stand? Forgive us for how we have judged one another in our hearts, for how we have judged others outside of our community, outside of our faith community, outside of our family, out, outside of our nation, outside of our perspective. Um, Father, forgive us for that. Thank You that You did not treat us that way. Thank You that Your Son canceled Himself so that we would not have to be canceled by You. Oh, Father, give us, give us the perspective of the Magi to, to, to travel so far because we believed in something outside of ourselves that we look back and saw signs of Your promise. Father, we thank You that we have songs to sing about Your first coming and songs that point to Your second coming and we wait for it. We long for it. Father, help us to endure. And Father, as we close 
uh, this year out and, and, and look upon another one, uh, we, we don't assume foolishly for a second that all of a sudden the problems of 2020 are going to go away on January 1st. So, Father, give us patience. Help our faith to see what you have done and what you are doing. And help us to be your salt and light. And Father, for anybody here who struggles to hope or struggles to see your grace in the darkest of circumstances, Lord, we hope for them. Help us to be a witness to them. Open their eyes that they would see. Open their ears that they would hear the truth of your grace in a dark and broken world. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, Emmanuel. Amen.